You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 14 in your Bibles. You can remain uh, seated for just a moment. We'll stand as we read the text, but I just want to say that it is a a joy uh, to be back with you, and it is a joy to be back in the book of Genesis. The last time we opened this book was March 14th of this year, so about five months ago, which means uh, perhaps there's a good chance that many of us have lost touch with the flow of this great and amazing book, the flow of the narrative. And, and perhaps maybe we've even lost touch with the structure in the, in the context of this book. I'm also aware that many of you are new either to this community or new to Christianity altogether. And so perhaps you're unfamiliar with the book of Genesis in general. Um, That said, I just want all of us, everyone in here, regardless of your exposure to this book, I don't want anyone to feel discouraged this morning. Particularly as we read chapter 14, we're going to hear a lot of names that we hadn't heard before, hard to pronounce, places that we hadn't heard before, also hard to pronounce, and I don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed. All of us are coming on board, and it's my uh, resolution, my resolve as you're preacher to give as, as a clear enough exposition as I can and to provide as many on-ramps every Sunday so that we can all get on board and, and get into the flow of this great narrative. Um, let me just give us a brief overview, five minutes of your time, a brief overview of Genesis that I hope will be one of those ramps before we get into chapter 14. The book of Genesis is often referred to as the Old Testament to the Old Testament. That is to say, it is the foundation upon which all of redemptive history rests. It is the fountainhead of religious themes like the mission of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all of these religious or biblical themes that we've come to know and love over the years come from this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Genesis is part one of a five-part series called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, tuk meaning book. It means five books. The first five books of the Bible is a summation, a summary of the the history of the nation of Israel. And Genesis is part one of that five-part series, the story of God's chosen people, the people of Israel. Genesis, the book itself, can be broken up into two main sections, very simply. Two main sections. The first 11 chapters of this book covers what is called primeval history. Primeval history. And that's just a fancy way of saying it's, it's the origin of everything. The first 11 chapters is the Bible's explanation of the beginning of everything. Primeval history. So although Genesis is interested in the earliest beginnings of the nation of Israel, what's remarkable about Genesis 
is that it backs all the way up to the beginning of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So again, the first 11 chapters, primeval history, is Moses' account, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses' account of the beginning of everything. That's primeval history. The second section, major section of the book of Genesis is chapters 12 to the end, 12 to 50. And that's referred to as patriarchal history. Another fancy way to talk about the the history of a family. The father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, It's a zooming in on the establishment and the growth of a single family that becomes a single nation, the nation of Israel. So you'll often hear throughout the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Chapters 12 through 50 is that patriarchal section of the book, and it zooms in on this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. So then Genesis very simply begins with a sort of a fisheye lens, a broad lens, and it shows the creation of everything in the first 11 chapters of the book. But then the lens tightens a little bit and shows the development of different nations of the earth. And then the lens tightens even more and captures the development of one family that eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And it's this morning, listen, it's this morning that we find ourselves in that patriarchal section of the book, the story of the nation of Israel. And as I said, the story of the nation of Israel begins in chapter 12 of Genesis with the call of Abram and Sarai. And the promise given to Abram that through Abram, all of the earth would be blessed. That many nations and many people would come through Abram and Sarah. And that the promise was that God was going to make Abram and his name great. And so chapter 12 begins with the call of Abram. By chapter 13, we learn that Abram was rich in livestock. He's rich in silver and gold. Indeed, the Lord had blessed him materially. We also learn in chapter 13, and this is important as we start to ramp into chapter 14, we also learn that someone is with Abram, his nephew, a man named Lot. And we learn that Lot is also being blessed. His livestock is increasing and his family is increasing. So much so that there becomes tension between Abram and Lot in chapter 13. And we quoted the famous philosopher Biggie Smalls, right? Mo money. No problems. And so they had all kinds of problems. They had not enough land for their herds to graze. And so there's all kinds of tension between the two families. And so Abram, the mature father of the faith, says to Lot, listen, you take the pick of the land. You go wherever you want to go and we'll resolve this conflict between our herdsmen and we'll separate. And Lot is sort of pictured as a, a bit of a stingy kind of a guy. He's out for number one and and Lot is, he's enticed. He's enticed by the, 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 the land of the Jordan Valley. And he chooses to settle in a place called Sodom. And if you've been around, if you've been alive, you've heard that Sodom is not necessarily depicted as a positive place to be Sodom and Gomorrah. That'll come up in our story 
this morning and again in chapter 18, but Lot is enticed. He, he sees the valley of the Jordan and he loves it. And despite the fact that it's filled, Moses says, Sodom is filled with wicked people and great sinners against the Lord. Despite all of that, Lot chooses to go to Sodom. And in chapter 13, again, Abram is depicted as a generous and mature leader, while Lot is seen as sort of looking out for number one. And that's where chapter 13 ends. With relative peace and tranquility in the land, the herdsmen are not warring, the families are growing and developing, there's plenty of space. But then, chapter 14 In our text this morning, like thunder in the night, a war breaks out. A war breaks out. And it is a world war. It is five kings against four. Nine kings come clashing together. This is the first war recorded in the Bible. This is indeed truly World War I. Five kings against four. Like thunder break the peace and tranquility. And this is where we pick up in our text this morning. So let's stand together if you're able. We're going to read all of chapter 14. Verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Ketalamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam. These kings made more war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Verse 3, and all of these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketalamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphim in asheroth Kanaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava, Karathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Belem, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the, in the valley of Siddim with, with Ketalamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. 
When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. That is Abram at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Memory take their share. This, beloved, is God's holy word. Please be seated. My goodness. The war of the kings and the rescue of Lot. The war of the kings and the rescue of Lot. What a fascinating and indeed unexpected portion of Genesis. For most of these kings and most of these places, this is the first we've heard of them in this narrative. And for many of them, this will be the last that we hear of them in all of the Bible. And all of a sudden, without warning, we move from chapter 13 to 14 and global conflict breaks out. Five kings against four. Most historians date this battle around 2,000 years before Christ. Which means one takeaway immediately is that the nations have been raging, beloved, for a very long time. And the conflict between the kings, if we can get sort of beyond some of their weird names, the conflict is actually very simple. And this brings us to our very first point of, of, of the sermon, of the first movement in the narrative, that is the conflict of the kings. The first 12 verses of this chapter details conflict between five kings from the west, led by the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And the conflict was with the four kings from the east, led by a man named Ketelamer. And the battle takes place in the valley of Siddim, which is just south of the Dead Sea near Jerusalem. So if you're familiar with Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, then the Jordan River that connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, the valley of Siddim is right at the base of the Dead Sea. And again, the conflict is very simple. 
The five kings from the west are tired of paying tribute to the four kings of the east. Tribute, taxes. It's always about taxes, isn't it? The five kings say, we're done. For 12 years, in fact, look at verse 4 of Genesis 14. For 12 years, they had served Ketelamer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. They paid their taxes. They did what they were supposed to do. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. And then after absorbing their rebellion for about a year, verse 5 tells us that Ketelamer and the other three kings responded to their rebellion. And it wasn't even a contest. The four kings just overcome the five kings. They were much stronger. They were better equipped than the five kings from the West. And again, the main battle takes place in the Valley of Siddim, just south of the Dead Sea, which is even to this day famous for its bitumen pits or its oozing tar pits. If you've been there, I've been to Jerusalem, I've been in that area, and you float around in the Dead Sea, and it's the weirdest feeling ever not being able to sink down. But I remember the, the, the tour guide telling us about the tar pits and the oozing petroleum pits. Well, this is where the battle is taking place, just south, just below the Dead Sea. Look at verses 8 and following. This is how the battle is summarized. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Emraphel, king of Shinar, Ariar, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. And here Moses says the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. That's tar pits. And, the, and, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. Now we're not sure if the Western armies fell into these tar pits on accident or perhaps, and it's more, most likely in, in my view, that they were simply choosing a better way to die than at the swords of the kings of the east. They see the bitumen pits, they see the tar pits, and they just think, that's a better way to die. So many of them go into the tar pits, either on purpose or by accident. And that becomes really the beginning of the end of the war. And it is a handily won war. The four kings defeat the five kings. And at this point in the sermon and in the text, The story of the warring kings is utterly random. It feels totally random. We don't know who they are. We don't know why they're there. We know why they're warring, but just a little bit. They fall into tar pits. And this story at this point is random. But then we find out the relevance of this story in this patriarchal part of Genesis. The relevance becomes very clear. Look at verses 11 and 12. So the enemy, that is the the king of uh, Ketelamir, king of Goam, and all of those four kings, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom 
and his possessions and went their way. So there it is. We know Lot. We know who Lot is. Lot is Abram's sort of stingy little nephew, remember. Remember in chapter 13, Lot was enticed by the beauty of Sodom and wanted to settle in that land despite the warnings that Sodom was filled with wicked people. And so Sodom settles in, or rather Lot settles in Sodom and he takes his family and his possessions and he settles there. But then Lot apparently gets caught up in this battle that has nothing to do with him. Five kings against four and Lot is just there. He's just there in Sodom. And so when Ketelamer and the other four kings overtake Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what? Lot gets overtaken. And all of Lot's possessions. And now we have relevance to this war. Now the Bible reader who's been tracking Abram's life since chapter 12 goes, Ah, I know now why this war is being recorded in Genesis 14. It has to do with Lot. And Lot is Abram's family. And this brings us now to the second movement of this chapter, the rescue of Lot. This becomes utterly fascinating. Look at verses 13 and 14, the rescue of Lot. Then one who had escaped and came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Anar, notice real quick the passivity of Abram in this war. He is not engaged in this war. He has nothing to do with taxes between these kings and these kings. He's just settled by the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron next to the altar that he built to the Lord. He's happy. But verse 13, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, first time he's called Hebrew, who was living in the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Askel and Anner. These were allies of Abram. Look at verse 14. This is key. When Abram heard that his kinsmen, his family had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So again, up until this point, Abram had been totally uninvolved in this battle between the kings. It was none of his business. He had no reason to get in the middle of the the battles of the kings. However, when Abram hears of the capture of his family, his passive position quickly changes. Verse 14 records that Abram led forth his trained men born in his house. But then Moses makes the note, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there were 318 of them. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. This feels very much like Gideon's army, right? Gideon asks for this amount of soldiers and God says, no, whittle it down some more, whittle it down some more, whittle it down some more until Gideon is left with 300, which just seems laughable. This is very much like that where 318, I don't care how trained they are, 318 Hebrews going against these four conquering kings led by Ketelamer. They're fresh off of a vicious victory against five other kings. They are literally stoked in this moment. And now 318 Hebrews 
are on their heels. And they travel 120 miles north in pursuit of these armies. But for the power and presence of God with them, this would have been a suicide mission. But look at what happens. Look at verse 15. And Abram divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants. So Abram's there. And defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Pushed them out north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions. And brought back his kinsman, Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is a full-on black ops, nightfall, guerrilla warfare attack. That's what's described here. Without warning, the the Hebrew army led by an 84-year-old, 85-year-old man, Abram, who's a herdsman, he's a farmer, he's a He's not a soldier. This is not a brave heart moment. He doesn't have his face face painted. This is not that. This is Abram, 85 years old. But here he's acting as a warring king, a general, and he descends upon the armies of the east at night without warning and sends them running for their lives all the way north of Damascus. This was a blistering, humiliating defeat of Ketelamer. Humiliating. This would have been talked about for decades after. Not only did Abram defeat the armies and rescue Lot, but Abram was able to secure all of the possessions that they had taken from the five other kings and their armies. This was a total victory by the Hebrews. And this victory leads to a most peculiar interaction between Abram, the king of Sodom, and Melchizedek. And this leads to our third and final movement in the text, the meeting of the kings, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. Now stop there for just just a moment. This makes total sense to me that the king of Sodom would want to meet Abram. Remember, the king of Sodom, Sodom had just been overcome by the four kings led by Ketelamer. So the king of Sodom is wanting to meet with Abram. Why? Because Abram's got his stuff. (laughs) Abram defeated the king of the, the four kings from the east and defeated Ketelamer and acquired all of the possessions that those kings took. And so the king of Sodom wants his stuff, namely his people. So it makes sense to me. This is sort of the way it goes in, in a battle. The king of Sodom was, was one of the kings defeated and he wants his stuff. This is a natural reaction from the king of Sodom. Look at their exchange just briefly in verse 21. And the the king of Sodom said to Abram in this meeting now, in this valley of Sheva, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
I don't know, sometimes tone is hard to read, especially in ancient Hebrew. I don't know what the tone was. It just sounds a little snarky. And I don't know if that's just me reading because I know Sodom is just known for wickedness and bad things. And that just, the king is the king of Sodom. And it just reads very snarky to me, especially for somebody who's just been defeated by the Eastern Kings. And especially who's somebody before another King Abram, who had just defeated the people who had defeated him. You would think there'd be a little bit more humility in his conversation. But nevertheless, he says, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Listen to Abram's response in verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. I want my 318 back. Let Anner, Askel, and Mamre take their share. Beloved friends, this is true integrity in the wake of victory. True integrity in the wake of victory. As a conquering king, Abram had every right to take Sodom's possessions. He could have told the king of Sodom to go pound sand and pay him taxes. He had every right legally and lawfully to take his people, to take his possessions but he didn't. For Abram, notice, he had already positioned in his heart before the meeting with the king of Sodom, he had already said, I'm not going to take anything from him. I'm not going to be in the debt of the king of Sodom, lest the king of Sodom, and you know he would, say, I have made Abram rich. He had already positioned in his heart before the confrontation. It would have been lawful, but for Abram, a man of faith, it wouldn't have been faithful. And this is a point of application for us. Just because something may be lawful, brothers and sisters, doesn't mean it's faithful. Just because we might find some loophole in the system that may be lawful, it doesn't make it Ethical. Are you tracking with that? And because Abram had already positioned in his heart that he would not become rich at the hand of Sodom, it would have been unfaithful for Abram to say, yeah, give me what's lawfully mine. Instead, Abram is acting like a principled king, a man of faith who is utterly dependent upon his God and refuses to make the king of Sodom his debtor. And he says, notice, my God possesses heaven and earth. Did you notice that? My God possesses heaven and earth. Therefore, what do I need from Sodom? I wonder if Lot was there to hear that exchange. 
The text doesn't say, it doesn't appear to be so because we know Lot ends up in Sodom again. And you know the story of the fire and brimstone that falls upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot is there and Abram again is there pleading to God that he would spare at least 10 from Sodom. Why? Because his family was there. Lot doesn't get it. But I wonder if we hear that this morning. I wonder if we hear that this morning. My God, our God possesses heaven and earth. What do I need? What do you need from Sodom? Of course I'm going to claim that income on my taxes. My God possesses heaven and earth. I don't need to have unethical loopholes that may be lawful but not faithful. My God possesses heaven and earth. Do we hear that this morning? Satan would love for us to think, and this is, this is the lie from the beginning. Satan would love for us to think that God is stingy and doesn't want his people to experience joy and pleasure. That is the greatest lie from the beginning, that God just wants you to not do things. What does it mean to be religious? And, and, and I mean that in the strict sense. What does it mean to be faithful as a Christian? Oh, it means I don't do things. Here's a list of things I don't do that would be fun, but because I'm a Christian, I don't do. That was the lie in the garden, wasn't it? From Satan to Eve. Oh, did God leave out that tree? Oh, so stingy. He just just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled. He doesn't want you to have wisdom and knowledge and, and, and independence. Beloved, the exact opposite is the truth. The pleasures of Sodom lead to bondage. The joy and the pleasures that are in God lead to freedom and true fulfillment. And so here is Abram acting as a man of faith. And he's got two kings before him. We're about to meet Melchizedek. He's got two kings before him and really two choices, doesn't he? He's got the king of Sodom and he's got the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. Which way is he going to go? Abram again displays the character of a true person of faith. Back in the text, the king of Sodom makes sense to us. He wants to get his stuff back and he's trying to make a deal with Abram. I get it. But the presence of the other king is at once surprising and at the same time so intriguing. He's surprising and intriguing. This man, this priest, King Melchizedek. Notice, let's read verse 18 and following as as we begin to close here. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. He was And he blessed him. He blessed Abram. And he said, blessed be Abram by God most high. Same phrase, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Not only does Abram refuse the wealth of Sodom, but he gives a tithe Unto the Lord. 
That tithe most certainly was unto the Lord. It went to Melchizedek, the priest king, but that tithe was unto the Lord. So not only did he refuse the wealth of Sodom, but he gives generously of what he already has in a tithe. And here's this figure, Melchizedek. He's described both as the king of Salem. He's a king. And as the priest of God most high, he holds a dual office. He is the priest king. And we're told that this priest king comes out. He comes with expensive refreshments for Abram and his soldiers. Another contrast between Sodom and Melchizedek. Sodom comes with his hand out. Give me my things. Melchizedek comes with a hand up. I am bringing something for you. Quite a contrast. Bread and water would have been basic supply for an army after a battle. Bread and water would have been seen as sufficient refreshment. But Melchizedek brings bread and wine. An expensive refreshment. But why is he there? There's a good Bible student, we have to ask the question, why is he there? He is there, but why? There's no mention of Melchizedek in the war. He's not one of the kings in the war. There's no mention of Salem in the war. There's no mention of Jerusalem in the war. So why is he there? He's got no stake in this. He's not paying taxes. He's not getting possessions. Why is he there? And clearly, Abram recognizes the value of this person, this person who holds this dual office, and he pays a tithe to him. Well, at very least, to answer the question, why is he there? At very least, Melchizedek is there to build a monument to the Lord. We get some of the reasons why he's there by what he says when he's there. Notice what Melchizedek says. He says, blessed be Abram. Blessed be Abram. He gives Abraham a blessing. And then he testifies that it was God who delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. He builds a monument. Melchizedek does. He says, God did this. God delivered your enemies, Abram. It was the strength of his right hand. And so that's the first reason why he's there. He builds a monument to God's faithfulness to rescue Lot. But there's more going on here. There's more going on to this figure, Melchizedek. And we get one other clue. One other clue in all of the Old Testament as to the purpose of this shadowy figure, Melchizedek. And this comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. We read it in our call to worship. Just listen carefully. Here's the clue. This is a psalm by David. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. King David is writing a psalm and he directs a promise about someone He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, both Jewish and Christians 
scholars consider Psalm 110 to be a messianic psalm. That just simply means that this psalm is written about the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one that would come and redeem Israel of their sins, atone for their sins once and for all. Both Christian and Jewish scholars consider Psalm 110 to be a messianic psalm. Because clearly, every priest and every king that has ever come through Israel has died and therefore cannot be the main subject of this psalm because David says that you, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation is waiting When is this priest, this forever priest, this forever king going to come? And it's not until the dawning of the new covenant, the new testament, where this shadowy priest king Melchizedek finds his truest substance. Turn with me now in your Bibles, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 6 as we close. Hebrews chapter 6. It's not until the dawn of the new covenant where this shadowy figure, Melchizedek, remember we're still talking about this priest king from Salem who's standing before Abram at the end of the battle. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The author of Hebrews, quickly, is trying to give the Hebrew Christians assurance. He's trying to preach the security that is theirs in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew Christians in the first century were tempted to go back to Judaism because it was safe and they weren't being persecuted. And so this whole book of Hebrews is about assuring Hebrew Christians that Jesus is enough for them. And this is verse 19 of Hebrews 6. He says, the author says, we have this as sure, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Here it is, having become a high priest forever after the order of whom? Melchizedek. This is a bomb that goes off in the first century Jewish context. Are you saying that this is the mysterious priest king of Salem that shows up in the war of kings in Genesis 14? Are you saying that this is the priest king who shows up in Psalm 110, the one we've been waiting for, the one who never dies? Are you saying that this is him? And the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, he's here, he's here. And this is why your salvation is sure because his priesthood goes on forever. Keep reading. Look at chapter seven, verse one. The author of Hebrews sheds light on the story we just read. Chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God met Abraham returning from his slaughter of the Kings. That's what we just read and blessed him. Verse two. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So then, beloved, this is why Melchizedek enters our text in Genesis chapter 14. First and most plainly to build a monument to God in God's victory over the kings of the east. To say, God did this. This is what a priest does. He mediates truth. And this is what he's doing. And second, Melchizedek enters the scene in Genesis 14 to put into motion a redemptive paradigm that could only be fulfilled by a priest and king who would live forever and who indeed ever lives to make intercession for his family. Melchizedek is here to put into motion a paradigm, a pattern a longing for a priest king who would never die. And the whole story of Genesis 14 is a microcosm of the gospel itself. Did you catch that? The whole chapter that we just read is a microcosm of the gospel itself. Let me explain. Abram displays the very character of God as he rises up to make battle on behalf of Lot, his family. Abram had nothing to do with the war until he found out that his family was in danger. And so Abram displays the very character of God by rising to make battle against Lot's enemy. Lot did not deserve to be saved, right? He's a stingy little man. He didn't deserve to be saved. If, If I'm God and if you're God, we're like, hey, you chose Sodom. You chose Sodom. You knew it was full of wickedness. You knew it was a volatile place. You chose Sodom. And so he didn't deserve to be rescued, but he was rescued anyway. Are you hearing the gospel? Are you hearing the gospel? He didn't deserve to be rescued, but he was rescued anyway. Why was he rescued? Because he was family. He was rescued because he was family. Notice Abraham doesn't go, oh, Lot's in trouble. He's such a good man. I remember when we were together and everything was just great. Abraham doesn't say that. It says he arose because it was his kinsman. It was his family. Are you hearing the gospel? Lot was rescued because he was family. It was Abram's love and care for Lot that provoked the rescue. Lot chose Sodom and was taken captive. Abram chose to rescue Lot because he's family. Beloved, do you see the character of God in this story? Do you hear the gospel gospel echoing throughout this story? Do you see God the Son now leaving his perfect bliss to rescue his own? In Christ, our forever priest-king, the substance behind every shadow of Melchizedek comes. Our Melchizedek, our priest-king comes not to give mere refreshment after a battle, 
But Jesus Christ instead comes to offer the very redemption of our souls. He comes with bread and he comes with wine that is far more costly than we could ever imagine. His own body and blood. So our prayer, my prayer this morning is that we would look to Jesus, our conquering king, our pursuing king, the one who comes for us behind enemy lines, the one who rescues us, the one who rescues us at the peril of his own life, his own body and his own blood. Would we look to Christ this morning, our king and our priest?